Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach, one of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. So, I want to talk about today, how do you find the courage and the strategy to persuade people, particularly people in positions of power, to do something different? Now, so many people that I talk to have great ideas and they cannot get people to listen to the ideas, let alone consider them seriously or even worse, adopt them. And I'm also going to say an awful lot of people that I talk to give up too quickly on the ideas. They fail to understand what the process of change really is about when you're trying to sell a new approach, a change in thinking, and how to stick with the message to see it through to success. So that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to take a real example of a major change, and we want to talk about the story of that change. How did it happen? And I want to use that to both inspire you that it is possible, that you may need to stick with it longer than you think, and to get some principles about what's really going to work. So now my guest today is Dr. Amy Rothenberg. She is has practiced as a licensed naturopathic medicine professional since 1986 and is the American Association of Naturopathic Physicians since and 2017 Physician of the Year. She's a longtime medical editor of the Institute for Natural Medicine, and she was diagnosed with cancer in 2014 and sought out, you know, a renowned teaching hospital for traditional treatment and then worked with her providers to, with great expertise in integrative and natural medicine oncology to kind of create her medical dream team and help her recover. So her book, I am super fan of, um, if you are dealing with cancer or have anybody in your life who's dealing with cancer, the title is You Finished Treatment, Now What? And the question of the book is really, how do you heal your body from this treatment that you have just been through. And I just took and summarized it in one sentence, which is probably unfair. Now, lest you think that this is an announcement about cancer or a show about well-being, it's not. We're not really going to talk about the book, though I highly recommend it. What we're going to talk about is change. How do you convince people to get change? So Amy, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It is a pleasure. Um, I'm super excited. I really do love the book. Seriously, anybody who's facing cancer, I think, needs this one as a reference. But just for people's interest, what the heck is naturopathic medicine, given the fact that I can barely say it without stumbling on the words? <laughs> Thank you for the opportunity to describe naturopathic medicine. Naturopathic medicine brings together conventional medical approaches to both diagnosis and treatment with the more preventive natural medicine approaches and some of the philosophical tenets that we ascribe to as naturopathic doctors. First of all, it's trying to address the root cause of illness and trying to stimulate and work with the body's inherent inborn capacity for healing and to look at the whole person and understand how stressors in people's lives oftentimes impact their physical, their cognitive, and their emotional health. And the role of things like stress reduction, 
the exercise prescription, the diet prescription, as well as natural medicine approaches can all be used to help people find a better state of balance, so, and particularly to help prevent the big three illnesses that are plaguing America, heart disease, diabetes, and cancer. About 80% of those illnesses are lifestyle preventable. And conventional medicine is a very big ship, and it's slowly turning toward these kinds of naturopathic philosophical points. There are, there's a lot more being done now in the conventional medical area in terms of research and practice with some of these things. But naturopathic doctors sort of have been uh, at the forefront of that movement, I would say, since about the 1960s when the profession really got codified. And um, we have the ability now to work in more integrative ways. It's not an either or, it's a yes and. And there are many people, at least in my, in my world, who come to see me and come to hear me lecture, who are interested in a fresh perspective on their health challenges. They don't want to be taking as many medications as they're taking. We're in a sort of pharmacologic um downhill slide, if you, if you will. Right now, the majority of people over the age of 60 are taking four or more medications. This leads to drug-drug interaction, drug-nutrient interaction. We have the phenomenon of the prescribing cascade where you take one drug, it causes certain side effects that you then need to take another drug for. And we have a lot of people who are don't, don't and don't feel well. So you know, they're doing everything their doctors and they don't feel well. We also have people who everything checks out fine. You know, the labs are good. The physical exam is within the normal range. They have some diagnostic imaging done. Everything is fine, but they don't feel good. They're depressed. They're anxious. They're tired. They don't sleep. They can't lose weight. They feel unmotivated, you know, fill in the blank. And I think with a, a naturopathic medicine approach where you're looking at the whole person and you're looking how, at how the stressors in a person's life impacts their health and offer opportunities for, for change. I mean, I love the topic of this conversation we're going to have. You offer opportunities for change in, in a, a slow, gradual, hopefully permanent way. I think people can often feel much better than they do. Okay. And so for me, you know, having had cancer was really, a, um, I knew immediately that I would be doing the conventional medical approach, that I, I would leave no stone unturned, and that I would also be doing naturopathic medicine alongside of that to help enhance the efficacy of conventional care, prevent side effects, address the few side effects that did arise. And then afterward, and with the topic of my book to sort of mop up. <laughs> yeah, to re restore, regenerate, revive, you know, get yourself back and hopefully to do some things that are going to be preventative. Okay. All right. I love it. And again, I do re really recommend the book. I'm really impressed with the book. I'm impressed with the science in the book. I'm impressed with the discipline approach. I'm impressed with the thoroughness. And I'm personally impressed with the whole notion of the whole being. Because from a leadership perspective, looking at the people that I see on one-to-one, -one, not handling these stressors in their lives puts them at their worst leadership self. self. And so I see that playing out day in and day out. Yes. Okay. I'm going to shift gears from that, though, to talk about what I want to talk about today in the podcast, which is big change. All right. And one of the things that I found most fascinating in your background is this notion that you decided that you were going to practice in Massachusetts, that you would convince the Massachusetts legislature to pass a bill that allowed naturopathic medicine in Massachusetts 30 years ago. Yeah. So tell us about the problem 
And tell me about how long it took you. You succeeded, but tell me about how long it took you to get there. <laughs> you're, you're, you're leading with the surprise, right? Um, yes. When we moved to the, to the East Coast, my husband, I met my husband at Naturopathic Medical School in 1982. We graduated as naturopathic doctors in 1986, and we sat for our board exams in the state of Oregon. In 1986, at that time, there were six states that licensed naturopathic doctors in the, in the country. One of them was Connecticut. We were both from the East Coast, and we knew ultimately we wanted to get back closer to family. And so we moved to the place we wanted to live in Western Mass, a kind of bucolic college town. And we practiced about 40 minutes away in Connecticut most of our career. And we did that because we were licensed in the state of Connecticut to be a physician. In other words, to both diagnose and treat illness. And we were covered by insurance in that state. Um, and we had a beautiful opportunity to do the work that we loved. We had in the back of our minds that we would um, try to work on a legislative effort in the state of Massachusetts. Now, I will say parenthetically that we immediately had three children in four years. And so a lot of our time and effort was put into raising our family. And there were other people ahead of us, older than us, who'd been in practice longer, who had started the ball rolling in terms of naturopathic medicine legislation in this state. We became more involved as the years went by and we got a little, we got the kids settled in, in their lives and their schoolwork and all of that. And about six years before the bill passed, the bill passed, Governor Bake, Charlie Baker signed the bill into law in 2014. Um, I'm sorry, 2017. The, the six years prior to that, Paul and I, my husband's name is Paul Herskew, we took on a leadership role in terms of the legislative effort. So what did that look like? Uh, we can talk about some of the details, but I can tell you that Although Massachusetts is known to be quite a liberal state, this was legislation that had been turned away and turned down for decades before we took it on in earnest. The Massachusetts Medical Society was dead set against us, and they were in lockstep with the American Medical Association's very articulated, very moneyed campaign of no new licensure for any profession and no expansion of practice of any existing profession. So we were often at the state house alongside other allied health providers who were looking to expand their capacity to practice in the state who were also being denied for the very same kinds of reasons. We had good company. Um, and I basically, the last four years of the effort, I devoted my Wednesdays, now we live about two hours from the state house, to going to the state house. Um, and some of those times, uh, included when I was going through treatment for breast cancer, and I would go from chemo and walk up the at Mass General, walk up the hill to the State House, put on my wig, and spend my afternoon lobbying. And, and you know, I, I felt like there was a way that, like anybody going through something hard, having something you believe in and something, a cause that you were working toward was actually quite healing for me and right. kept me kept me really at it. And of course, I was so thrilled when the governor signed the bill. Um, and there, there's a lot, but oh, I just said, you know, a couple sentences, there's a lot between how that worked and how we got it done. And I'm happy to answer any questions about that. All right. So what I want to highlight is this is a 30 plus year journey. Yes. To get the bill signed. 30 plus years. In fact, I did the math right there at 31 years that somebody yeah. thought they would get it done. 31 years later, it's actually done. And against some heavy hitters, well-established, lots of money, 
big national organizations, okay, with a, a bunch behind them. Like you, this is going against the powers that be in every way that it can conceivably be. All right. So 30 some years and granted you weren't leading the effort all the way through that. I get that, but you were still sort of party to it because you were part of the association and listening to the, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, I I can, I should insert here that in 1985, going into 1986, my husband and I were both founders of our national associations called the American Association of Naturopathic Physicians. We are founders of that organization, along with a number of other people. And we were involved with a legislative effort in the state of Nebraska, where we helped to write a lot of the boilerplate legislation that's been used in many states. There are now over 25 states that license naturopathic doctors, uh, along with Puerto Rico, the U.S. Virgin Islands, and District of Columbia. So we were involved, and we were on the board of the AANP. We were very involved with our state association. So though we weren't leading the legislative effort in our state, we kind of always had a finger in the political arm, if you will, political side of our work. And as a physician, being involved with politics is is not necessarily the same skill set. Let's put it that way. Um, there are there is overlap, particularly in the point that I think you we're going to be getting to around how to get people to change because so much of our medical work is about how to inspire people to make better choices in terms of their healthcare and, and their lifestyle. But um, we were we were we were quite involved and we were mentored by wonderful people who had been through a lot of this before. And I I, I like to think that we've turned around and, and gone on to mentor others in the same thing. So I also started writing very early in my career. And my idea about writing, and it was public facing writing. Um, I was writing about everything from natural medicine approaches for otitis media, to how to deal with PMS, to how to work with culinary herbs in your kitchen to help your immune system. I was trying to do that and this is before the internet. Okay. Remember 1980s before the internet, I was doing that in whatever magazines I could get into on radio shows. We didn't really have podcasts then, but we certainly had interviews on radio shows, television interviews. Um, I, anytime there was an opportunity to use the word naturopathic and introduce it to the American public, and also to give information that people were very happy to receive uh, and not again, against conventional medicine, just you can also think about this. Uh, so I became very comfortable in that kind of situation and have literally written thousands of articles. <laughs> once the once the internet became a thing, of course, things got much easier. I started blogging for the Huffington Post. And a lot of this was because we knew to get a legislative effort through, we were going to need a very stimulated, very encouraging, very useful, helpful grassroots behind us. It wasn't going to happen because eight doctors in a state want this thing to happen. It was going to happen because there was a grassroots push where people are going to be calling and writing and now emailing their legislators in terms of saying, I want to have the option to have access to this kind of care. Great. So, you know, you, you have to start somewhere. So I think education for us was a, a huge first Great. step. All right. I think if, as people are thinking about big change inside their organizations, you just said one of the number one things I think people miss. All right. So you said there needs to be a grassroots effort, meaning people need to want this thing besides just you. It can't be you and one of your buddies or you and your manager that wants it. We need a groundswell of this would be useful. This is worth spending money on. This will make a change. will make it better for me and have those people apply pressure. 
But you said also that you needed to build, you didn't use the word, I'm going to use the word credibility with that audience. And so you're writing, you're blogging eventually, you're speaking, you're talking to people, you're giving advice to people in a public arena that builds your credibility as having something useful to say to those people who are going to then become advocates. If I put that in a corporate context, we always say in the corporate context, you need to build your network. Okay, great. I just told you now what kind of network you need to build. The credibility with people who are going to be advocates for the sort of changes that you want to see and giving them the tools to advocate for you for the kind of changes that you want to see. And that work has to start before you're actively lobbying the senior leadership to make a change because you need that grassroots to really create a push. 100%. And I would add in terms of the, the, the medical piece, which I'm sure there's a corollary in the corporate world, is that everything that we're talking about, we're tacking down to the conventional scientific evidence. So there's, there is a lag between when things are discovered in the laboratory and when they get to the bedside. And we cull that literature to understand, you know, what is the role of vitamin D in immune function? What is the role of coffee for cancer survivors? What do we know about exercise in pregnancy? There's so much written about these things by scientists who study it and who get published in peer-reviewed journals. So for us, you know, for me going into the state house, I often was lugging an enormous pile of studies about something. And I was very careful and mindful and strategic about which kind of information I was sharing with which people by doing the homework. So I, I'll just give you one example off the top of my head. We had one senator who was very high up in leadership who was very interested in elder care. She was, that was sort of cause celeb was around elder care in this state. So I went and I, I knew that our national association had done a big study on the opinion of older people. If they ha- could have access to preventive and natural medicine, would they choose it? And the, you know, of course, the study was very positive. And there were other studies about older people and what were features and factors that help people live long. I arrived at her office very well-versed in sort of the natural medicine approaches to gerontology, if you will. And, you know, she she could tell right away, A, I had done my homework. B, I was passionate about what I was interested in and why it was important. And then also we dovetail that with what are the negative effects of not licensing us, which is, was a huge angle. That The main reason there that, that is a problem is that there are a lot of people using the term naturopathic who have no medical training. And this is people, quote unquote, practicing medicine without a license. And also a a public that does not know the difference cannot differentiate, if you will, can we can get into real problems. So somebody presents to a person like that and they're constipated. All right, they're going to throw some herbs at them. And meanwhile, they have colon cancer and they never thought to do a colonoscopy kind of thing. So we we knew that the dangers were there and we needed to point those out in a respectful way, um, not trying to take anybody's livelihood away from them, but needing to understand the concept of a title um, protection. Right. Okay. So now you give me principle number two, which is you have to know the people that you're trying to influence and what it is that they really care about. And you have to take the idea that you have and make it relevant to the thing that they care about. Like this legislator who cared about elder care, and that's where the doing your homework and being passionate about it and being persistent and bringing the information and 
in her style and in her way kind of systematically becomes essential to get that person to buy on. Now, the third thing, we tend to talk about the positives of doing something, of making a change. But I love what you just said. We also have to talk about the risks of not making the change. I I think we miss that one. Like, what are we missing if we don't make the change? What can go wrong here's a, there? Here's another, here's another one for, in our example, we, when we moved here, as I mentioned to Massachusetts, Connecticut was the only state that licensed naturopathic doctors. In the intervening 30 years, Maine, Vermont, New Hampshire, Rhode Island, all licensed naturopathic doctors. So we became a state that was a refuge for unlicensable folks, but also we were losing many dollars to contiguous states because people who lived here would go across state borders like myself to practice. Our income tax went to Connecticut, not Massachusetts, and the patients spending the money were taking it out of state. So that was another place where we were losing. And we were also losing in terms of the educational opportunities in the state. Right. Right. Okay. So the risk of not doing it. I love it. That's another piece of the puzzle here for persuading people. Okay. So along the way in this journey of getting Massachusetts to pass this legislation, there must have been many setbacks because I think there were several times when the bill comes up and it's turned down and it comes up and it's turned down. So tell me about those setbacks. Describe one of them for me. Okay. Well, and I really I, want to know, how did you survive it? How did you get through right, it? Yeah, right. Well, one time the bill passed the House and it didn't pass the Senate. In the very next session, it passed the Senate and it didn't pass the House. Because you have to remember, state legislatures are ever evolving. So the education that you do with one lawmaker and the inroads you make with one lawmaker, well, they may get sick and die, or they may, or may retire, require, yeah. or they may get another job where they're no longer in that role. So you're in a constant state of having to reinvent your education and pointing it accurately, like you described to that, focusing on the individuals you're speaking with. One year, the year before the bill passed, it passed the House and the Senate. And then the governor in Massachusetts, usually the governor signs bills during the regular session. Then they have something called the special session lasts for two weeks in January. Um, Our sessions are every two years. And the governor, if the governor doesn't sign a bill during the special session, I'm sorry, during the regular session, it passes anyway. If it it just, it's sort of, but if it's in a special session and the governor doesn't sign it, it's considered a pocket veto. So the governor doesn't have to actively veto it. You know what I'm saying? They, if, if they just don't get to it, it doesn't pass. And that's what happened to us. We passed the House and the Senate, and in a special session, the governor didn't pass it. I thought I was going <laughs> to you know, pop a gasket. I, I couldn't believe it. And the, and the thing about that was that this was a governor who was very progressive and I think really believed in us and our message and what we do and our education, our training, our expertise. But he had people from the Mass Medical Society basically breathing down his neck about how he could not sign this bill. Uh, that That's really the, you know, and you know how they say you don't want to see how sausage or law is made. It's so true. Right. It, it's right. so true. But for, for us, you know, that happened when, when he didn't sign that bill. That was January 18th, uh, 2015. Uh, I remember the day, you know, and that was the last day he had to sign, didn't sign it. We reintroduced that legislation the next day literally the next day. And we were so hungry for it. I mean, you say like, you know, how did I deal with it? The way I dealt with it was just hunkered down and just pressed harder, you know, I, because we, we knew we were so close and we were just gaining steam and we were gaining 
supporters and advocates. And you, you just need one champion in the legislature. You need one person who's going to say, I am going to make sure that your bill gets passed. And we also got, we got a new governor. So we knew it wouldn't happen again by the same governor. We got a new governor and we had an ace in the pocket. I'm not going to say how somebody who was very close in, in his, um, in his close in circle, who was a grateful patient. Right. So we knew if we could get it to the governor's desk, the governor would sign the bill. Right. Um, of course, there's never any guarantees, but it was pretty. It was, it was as close as one could get. Right. So we didn't spend a lot of our energy working on the governor's office. We we did spend some and did sat down with representatives from the governor's office. We had a very good connection with the secretary of health and human services. We hired a new lobbyist. This was also very important in terms of getting getting the right person to do the ask. We had a wonderful lobbyist that we all adored. We needed somebody with a little more dog in the fight. And we hired a, a woman who just knew everybody. And, and as soon as I met her, I, I'll tell you how I met her. We, we met at Whole Foods in the little cafe area. I was in the middle of chemotherapy. I had no hair. I was as skinny as a stick. I did not feel very well. And um, she had our previous lobbyist recommended her. That's how good a guy he was. I think you need somebody else. I haven't gotten done in 25 years. I'm not your man. And um, she, she, we talked about it. She had done some other work with other allied health organizations. Incredible. And she, I knew we couldn't afford her. We were a small group. We couldn't afford her. And, I, and she said, uh, I said, well, how much do you charge for the year? She said, uh, $20,000. I said, would you take 15? She said, done. And and we on a handshake, it was about a 10 minute interview. It didn't last very long. And she's still with us. She's amazing. Marianne Hart. So I, you know, I feel like the, the, it was very discouraging, but uh, I could just see the promised land. <laughs> and I, I had, I felt I had the wind at my back by then, you know, from my whole profession, the entire country, you know, was behind me, <laughs> which is very helpful to know that you have a lot of people behind you. And I had helped a lot of people, you know, and I, and I wasn't like keeping score in any way, but there were a lot of people who wrote letters, made phone calls, called their people in Massachusetts and asked them, you know, it's all about organization and, and keeping track of everybody and knowing who you need in which district to be able to call their representative or their senator. And that is a, you know, Paul and I, that next session, we have a long, long dining room table. We took a piece of butcher block paper and we spread it out and we wrote down which committees this bill needed to get through by when, who was on the committee, which citizens did we have in those people's districts that we could call to be sure that we were ahead of it. Um, we got into a bigger, bigger fundraising effort so that we had more money to do more outreach. Um, I won't go into the fundraising efforts. Some of them were kind of silly yeah. and fun. And, you know, we basically, Paul, Paul, I would say, was the mastermind behind the strategy. And I'm the people person. So, you know, he could do the whole strategy and then stick me in front of, I cannot tell you how many times I spoke at public hearings uh, that I brought grateful patients with me to public hearings um, that I wrote op-eds for the Boston Globe. I mean, you know, just on and on. So yeah, I, I, I guess, I mean, you know, that expression, like if you do it the same way and you expect to expect something different, you know, you're not too bright. We knew we had to do something different. And, and so we did, we, we kept up with a lot of the same things and then we would layer it with new approaches and new information and bring in the more current research and 
explain how every other state around us, this is the American people, people want options. Not everybody wants natural medicine, but everybody wants options. Okay. So. Wow. All right. Never mind the fact that this is a 30 plus year effort, but even if I just look at the last three years of this effort, particularly as you're going through chemo and not at your best and not feeling great and everything that comes with that, I cannot imagine the stamina, but I've just written down on that. So we talked about three principles already for getting a major change through. One is the grassroots effort, the credibility of the networking. We talked about that. The two is knowing what people that you need to influence care about and attaching your agenda to that one. Three is the risk of not doing what you're saying. But then you gave me six, four more. One is the need to have a champion and to have a champion who is well-placed. All right. And number five, an issue I hope everybody is listening to really, really, really carefully, regardless how good your cause, how much support you have for your cause, how many people are behind you, Yours will not be the only issue on the table. And that's relevant because of your governor not signing, even though you knew he supported it at that moment in time. But he had another issue called the Medical Association. And, you know, it's not that the governor doesn't care and isn't a champion and has under, you know undermined you or none of those things are true. It's just it's more than one issue on the table. I had a conversation with somebody today who's struggling with, do I trust anybody because they let me down? You're not the only issue on the table, okay? Number six, don't be afraid to change your team. Even people who've been with you from the journey who were really good or fantastic, they may not be what you need for that last mile. You need to be hard-nosed about what do I need and who's going to get there. Number seven, you said supporters. And then we're back to our grassroots effort. I've got people all over everywhere. I need to know where they're connected. I need to know who I need to influence. I need to know which of those people can influence those people. I need to know when I need to have it happen in order to get in corporate life into the budget cycles and into the you know sales cycles and the so on, okay? And you keep up with all of your publicity efforts that keep your credibility going and you update that and refresh that constantly. Can I add one more thing? Yes, please. I think that the role of luck and serendipity and creating opportunities for good things to happen is so important. I'm just going to share one story because it's so fun. We we needed to get in touch with the governor. We just needed to smooth the path, make sure that the governor was going to sign this bill. And I spent a, a morning waiting <laughs> in the foyer of the governor's office at the state house. And he had a, a very lovely young-ish receptionist there. And I just needed the card of the person who's scheduled. I, you know, I just needed like something specific from her. Uh, she was pretty tight-lipped and not really wanting or ready to do this. And I kept sort of making excuses to circle back. Well, at a certain point, she receives a phone call and she hangs up the call. She starts crying kind of quietly. And I was like, oh my God, what happened? It was something in the family and she was going to have to arrive somewhere and she was going to have to take a train and she didn't have time to like get the flowers or get the chocolates. She, she needed to arrive with a gift and how was she going to do it? Well, at the same time, I had just gotten a text from our lead sponsor's office. We had just passed the Senate and I basically had sent them a um, one of those fruit baskets with the chocolates and all that, and mm -hmm. that you can't give gifts of more than $50. And I know that. It was a $47.99 <laughs> gift. But 
with the shipping and handling and delivery, it was $58. And they called me to tell me that I needed to come pick up the gift because they couldn't accept it. So I <laughs> sent Paul down to pick up that gift. And we, he came in with this big thing and placed it on the desk of this woman who was running to Gonna get, you know, going to be running to catch the train. And she she just like, went into her top drawer of her desk, pulled out this card and gave it to me. <laughs> and then we had this incredible meeting with the person that we really needed to talk to. So, I mean, you know, like you couldn't orchestrate that. But if you are present and you're paying attention and you're sensitive and you're kind and you have the best intentions, at, you know, in your, in your heart, then I think that sometimes things can happen that are, you know, we, we like to think that we're planning every little detail and we can get every little thing right. And, and yes, we need to arrive prepared. Absolutely. But we also need to be open to the idea of serendipity, good fortune, kindness of others. And, and there was a lot of that going around. Right. There's a 10th thing that you've described here, which is the power of just flat out helping people. So you have grateful patients who are willing to show up at public hearings because they're grateful patients for how they have been treated or what has happened to them, or people that you've helped and nurtured in other places who are willing to champion something that you're doing. It You know, that pay it forward, you can say, you can be that kind of clear about it, but just being helpful on occasion as it comes back to you, you can undermine that. And I think too many times we get so jaded with the lack of success and people's other agenda items that we forget about the kindness. And I will also add serendipity. You can't, it's there. It's always there a moment in time. Yeah. And, and I mean, no, I think the other piece that's for me very, very related to that, that point is I, I think in almost any setting, if you're trying to accomplish something, it's very helpful to tell stories and as a physician, I have a lot of stories, not just my own story of health and healing and resilience, but the stories of thousands of children and adults and older people that I've treated in my career. And stories have a way of softening people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I, I've worked a lot with uh, colleagues who I, I mentor around the idea of, you know, the, the case study and using stories to illustrate. And if you're giving a talk or you're writing something, give an example, tell a story, tell your story, tell your story, because people are interested in that. They're not only interested in the data and the spreadsheet and the finances. They, 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 of course, the bottom line is all that's very important, but people are interested in stories and stories can really, I think, help move a conversation. And People are, it it allows us to be more relational and more um, sort of connected with the human experience. So I don't know how impertinent that is in the business world, but it's certainly. Totally. Because I think stories are what persuade. So first off, story, I can tell you from my own research and from hundreds of other pieces of research, we remember the stories. We don't remember the facts. I also think we make up our mind, not only my work, but thousands of other much more smarter academics, uh, much more well-published academics can show to you that we make up our decisions largely based on emotions and then justify it with the facts. Stories carry the emotion. So stories are your most persuasive tactic. Not because I'm pulling on somebody's heartstrings, but because I can illustrate the complexity of what's involved. It's not just a number on a spreadsheet. It's not just a bottom line. It's a purpose, a cause, a reason, uh, something. Now, again, you have to have those things, your bottom line and your numbers and your facts and your science. Yes, absolutely, totally. 
but stories are powerful everywhere. And we way underestimate um, how important they are, what kind of stories are relevant, and how to tell them in a concise, impactful way. Yes. Okay. All right, Amy, this is a perfect place to take a break because we've been talking for a long time about this one. I love this. I've now got 10 points on what it takes to make major change. When we come back, what I want to talk about with you is how do you sustain yourself through this? Because this is not for the faint of heart. So I want to talk about what you did to sustain you. My guest today is Dr. Amy Roth. Rothenberg, let me say that correctly, a licensed naturopathic medicine practicing in Connecticut and now Massachusetts. The book I highly recommend if you or anyone you know is dealing with cancer called You Finished Treatment, Now What? And we'll be right back. This is Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. Do you find yourself in a role where your team knows more than you know? Are you struggling to see how you now add value? For years, I've coached leaders who have moved beyond the comfort zone of their expertise and have developed a methodology to help them make the leap and go on to do more. All of those tips are now packed into my new book, You Can't Know It All. Visit our website at leadership-forum.com or tune in to Out of the Comfort Zone for more insight. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadership-forum.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, helping organizations get it and keep it. Hi, I'm Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. We have some amazing guests with some incredibly good ideas about how to take your leadership to the next level. But I find people are looking for more practical ways of implementing those ideas. So we've created an individual subscription service specifically to focus on how to apply. You'll find more about that at www.outofthecomfortzone.com. We have two additional subscription services, one for the social group that want to exchange ideas and perspectives with a group and talk about career advancement. And we have a master's level for people who want to take a deeper dive all on outofthecomfortzone.com. We hope you'll join us. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadership-forum.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back to the show. With me today is Dr. Amy Rothenberg. Amy's book is You Finished Treatment, Now What? A Field Guide for Cancer Survivors. Again, I've said several times, a book I highly recommend if you or anyone you know is dealing with the aftermath in particular of cancer. Highly important. Amy is a practiced license, practicing and licensed naturopathic medicine professional. She's been doing this since 1986, practicing in the state of Connecticut and now in Massachusetts. We have been talking not about cancer and about treatment, about medicine, so much as it is about the long journey of getting a body of power to accept 
a change and what it took over a 30-year journey to get the Massachusetts legislature in the United States to pass the licensing for naturopathic medicine in the state of Massachusetts, something that has happened now. And the thing that I get fascinated by is 30 years. Can anybody imagine 30 years on a journey to get somebody to do something? I think the parallels between what Amy, her colleagues, her husband, Paul, and others in their association have gone through to get this passed is hugely related to what it is we see in corporate life to get a change through. And I think we way underestimate the power of what's what's involved. Just to reiterate, there is the starting before you're passing, you're pushing for a change of building your credibility and getting a grassroots effort that wants this change that you're about. It's making sure you know that the people you're going to need to buy into your idea, actually, you know what they care about. So you're speaking in a language that they care about and intelligently. Three, emphasizing the risk of not doing what you're doing, not your, what you're saying, as opposed to just why we should. Finding a champion. Recognizing that sometimes for that champion, they may still be a champion, but it isn't the only issue that's on their table. So sometimes they may disappoint you badly on occasion, but it doesn't mean that they're no longer a champion. Don't be afraid to change your team. If you find that the skill set you need for the last mile isn't the one that you needed for the first 30 miles, um, you need a lot of supporters from all sorts of walks of life. You tend to get a lot of those supporters because you do a lot of help. You help people. You're very kind. You're generous. You just, and then they're willing to reciprocate. It is very much mapping out who you need to do what by when and who around you is going to reach out to those people by when and how in order to get there. And lastly, next to last, there's a bit about luck, just sort of being at the right place in the right time, having something you can do that's a breakthrough. And then the last one is tell stories because stories are the human connection. Okay. That's a terrible injustice to what is a really long journey, but just the highlights for me in that story. Okay, now I want to turn, Amy, to the notion of how do you keep yourself motivated to keep going? Because especially when you have the legislature pass the House one year, pass the Senate the next year, pass the House and the Senate the following year, and then the governor doesn't sign it. I mean, I'd want to throw up my hands and say, who cares? I'm leaving the state of Massachusetts. Forget all of you, but you didn't. So what is it that keeps you sustained through all of this? Well, I just, I just it could be a little bit of insanity. I mean, you know, I, I just hear okay. you say, you know, okay, well, maybe there's a little, a little bit of a loop through. <laughs> uh, and there's cer- we certainly had some incredible doctors pass through and not stay or set up shop and then realize, oh, no, I'm not staying here. Uh, sadly, we, we miss them all. Of course, some are flocking back now, which is awesome. You know, I have, I I think if you have a strong, uh, if you have a goal and you have a strong set of values and you believe in what you are working toward, uh, you can be unflappable. I I don't really know. I I, I think that it depends on how much you believe in the thing that you're pushing for. And of course, I'm married to somebody who's also in this profession. We've built our life in this profession. This profession has been so good to us. We have had the joy and the privilege of raising a family within the what we understand about natural medicine. We have the incredible um, opportunity to teach other people how to use the tools that we know how to use. And we've only met with success. So we, 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 we always said, people would say to us, 
who, who's your biggest enemy? Or a lot of times we would preempt that question in the state house. We'd be like, well, you're probably wondering who our biggest enemies are. You know, we always said the same thing. Our biggest enemy is ignorance. And as soon as people understand who we are and what we do, everybody wants a naturopathic doctor. It's, it's logical, you know? So I think that for me, having the strong um, belief in what I do and a strong faith in the, the power of, uh, well, persistence, yes, but also just in the power of, of truth, which I know in our day and age, truth is a very slippery topic and okay. there's all kinds of issues politically, but I believe there's some truth here, a very basic truth that we have the ability to heal ourselves. that the human body is incredibly designed for, to be resilient. And I want our medicine to reflect that. And I want everybody who wants it to have access to that kind of care. So how did I stay positive and stay focused and stay determined? I leaned into many of the very things that I lean into in my recommendations for patients. I have a strong faith, a spiritual faith. That's, that's a guiding principle for me that informs a lot of what I do and the way that I treat people and the way that I organize my life. I also have a very strong commitment to daily exercise. I have a meditation practice. It's brief, but it is daily. I eat very well for me. You know, it's individual biochemistry and I eat the right diet for me. And I also have not lost the ability to be silly, have fun, have outside interests, totally unrelated to medicine, healing, politics. Um, and I've cultivated an incredible community of friends around me that have similar values. So I have a happy life. And in, within my happy life, I'm also very purpose-driven. And so to have a purpose, in fact, we just introduced legislation this week, an expansion of practice bill at the state house. So I'm right back at it. And I will also say that never underestimate the attraction and the um, thrill of the sound of your heels clicking on a marble floor. <laughs> Something about that sound and putting on, you know, if anybody who knows me, I'm a blue jeans and t-shirt kind of woman. But when I would get go to that state house, I love to dress up. I love to put on my pearls. I love to get in there and just put on my professional hat and to share my stories and to, to enable people to make good decisions for the people that they're representing. So, you know, I, to me, the persistence in that is not different than the persistence that I've had in other areas of my life and in values that I try to instill in my children and in my commitment to nurturing and, and remaining in a, in a beautiful marriage of, of many decades now. So it, it, it's all sort of a, another pers a part of, of the same story. So I hear in that, Amy, a good dose of taking care of yourself. Self-care, number one. Okay. Just that thing, getting on that plane, and they always say, put that oxygen mask on yourself before on your child. You can't do much in the world, I don't think, unless you show up in your best possible state of your own self and you get there. Like, how do you get to being in the zone with your work? I feel like the whole thing with getting in the zone is, you know, we know we can't control the uncontrollables. So what are the things we can control? Well, I can control being well-rested, being hydrated, being well-fed, being well-exercised, like everything you would do for your dog, you should be doing for yourself. <laughs> You know, and and I sometimes say that to patients, and they kind of laugh, and they realize, oh yeah, it's kind of true. I do take that. <laughs> but yeah, self care 
is paramount. And you have to, in my field, and this is true probably in many fields, I have to walk the walk. You know, like I once went to a friend's house who's a master gardener. Her garden was so incredible. It was just so, every part of it, the colors, the things coming sequentially, the way there were no weeds anywhere. And I said to her, oh my God, I, your garden. She said, this is my job. This is, this is what I do for a living. If I had a crappy garden that didn't look kept, <laughs> no one would hire me. I feel like that as a doctor, I have to be as healthy as I can be. Understanding that we all have a genetic inheritance. We all have different... People have trauma-informed backgrounds. I mean, there's, there's, we've all been through a lot. And so not everybody's level of health is going to be different. But to optimize what you have for where you are in this decade of your life, like that's part of my job as being a doctor is, is walking the walk and modeling okay. you know, healthy living. Okay. okay. All right. So healthy living, which, okay. Includes many things. So there's eating and exercise and all that things, but it's also meditation and all those things that go with that. There's a strong uh, mission, purpose, cause that you fundamentally believe in. There is a set of values by which you are going to live your life and your interactions with everybody, regardless how useful, helpful, not helpful, <laughs> accepting, taking action on your behalf or not, you're going to live by those set of values, which is about being helpful to people. One of the many values I know, but those three, and then a set of friends and outside interests. So this doesn't take over all that you are and a general ability to laugh at all of it, to see the humor in all of it. Um, one of the best jokes that my lobbyist said to me, uh, not a joke, but one of the funniest things she said to me, we were walking down the hall, we were about to have a meeting with the Speaker of the House, uh, who basically held all the cards uh, in that particular moment. And she she said something like, um, I'm pretty sure he's going to pass it through the committee because I think he feels sorry for you. <laughs> when, I was in the, when I was going through chemo, I think he literally feels sorry for you. And I was like, whatever it takes. You know, <laughs> She said it with such a straight face, you know, but she's kind of <laughs> great. All right. So that's the sustaining. And I, I I can't just come back to this thing about believe how much you believe that this is good. This is the this is a really healthy thing for an awful lot of people. And having people around you who keep reinforcing for you, this is a good thing. Like that trying to do it all by yourself without that sense of community supporting the mission is just sounds to me painful. It never would have worked. I, I don't think it would ever have worked. I, I, I wouldn't have felt sustained personally, but there were just too many parts of the job for one person to do. So I am very good at delegating. I am not a control freak. I am very, I'm very, I'm really, really good at making the list of what needs to get done and meeting it out and finding the right people for the right parts of the job. Uh, I'm not good at a lot of things. And so I, and I know the things I'm not good at, and I'm very good at finding people who are good at them and doing those parts of the job. I love that. Boy, could we all use that a lot more in corporate life? Uh, my clients could certainly use that one. Okay. In the few minutes that we have left, Amy, I want to talk for a minute about, you know, so we talked about how you persuade the legislature to adopt this policy and the sustained years, but Contrast that to how it is that you convince people in your daily practice to change their behaviors. Mm, right. Well, I think it depends on the individual. You have to be able to understand what is the kind of approach that's going to work for the person in front of you. There's no cookie cutter way to do it because 
everybody responds to information, encouragement, recommendations differently. So part of my job is to understand, is somebody coming at this because they want me to cite the research, in which case I will cite the research? Is somebody coming at this because they know somebody who was helped by me, they don't really care what I tell them to do, they believe in me already? That's a very different, you know, and there's many more kinds like that, but that's two examples, very different way I present information. In fact, I'm just about to uh, do a presentation for a national organization about parenting. And if you understand the type of child you have, how that would impact the way you parent. It's very similar in terms of meeting out medical recommendations. So you, and that's one point. The second point is where I'm aiming low and I'm aiming long. I prefer that people make slow, gradual, sustainable changes instead of the big overhaul. Uh, and especially, you know, related to my book, there's a lot of people who've had cancer. It's like a wake up call for them. They want to change everything. And it doesn't really work. It's not sustainable. It makes everybody around them crazy. It's too expensive. So we just find a few things at a time. We try to find where are the leverage points? This is true for whether it's diabetes, heart disease, depression, insomnia. Where are the leverage points where we can have an impact that can be sustainable, that's not going to make the person, the people around them crazy? So those are some of the ideas. And then lastly, I would say, you know, I try to come to people with understanding what it is that's most limiting to them related to the problem they're coming in with. I'll give you an example. I had a young person come in, a young woman. She was beautiful. She had terrible acne, just, just terrible acne. It was, it was really, really bad. We don't see that very often anymore because of drugs like antibiotics and Accutane, but it was so bad. And I, so I asked her, what is the worst thing about it for you? And because you could project, I, you could think, oh my God, it would be embarrassing or whatever the word would be. She said, well, the worst thing for me, she was super confident, big energy, very optimistic, very successful young woman. She said, the worst thing for me is these things, these, these boogers, they're painful. That was the worst thing for her. So I, I it, it totally blew me out of the water. It was like, oh, okay, I do want to help her. These are the way we're going to help her. But the way I'm going to frame it is all about how can we reduce pain as opposed to how can we make you look good? Uh, you know, or doing these things is going to make you look better. And so just understanding what is the worst, what is most limiting? People bring their children in with, you know, ADD or problems with, uh, you know, attention, or maybe they're anxious and the parents are harping on one thing and the kid is old enough, they're 11 or 12. And you, you know, what's the worst thing about it? And then they come out with something that is totally different than what the parents are saying. So really taking mm -hmm. the time, and, and this is one part of naturopathic medicine, my first visits are 90 minutes with people. Every follow-up visit's 30 minutes. So I, I know my patients. And I'm not saying conventional medical doctors don't know their, doc their patients, but their visits are often 13 minutes. Uh, the average length of time before a doctor interrupts the patients when they start talking, would you like to venture a guess? No. <laughs> 11 seconds. Okay. So, you know, you can't get to know people too much. So I really pride myself. And I think people in my profession pride ourselves in getting to know our patients in a way where we can address the thing that they feel is most limiting to them. We might disagree with them. Uh, we might say, well, actually, you know, the fact that your blood pressure is where it is, that that's really, we, we really need to focus on that. And here are some ideas for that. And, we, and I always give people a, a menu of options. We, you know, it's not just a one size fits all. Right. So individualizing the, the, the treatment to the patient and also asking for feedback. And when people mm -hmm. come back for a follow-up, you know, did it work? How do you feel? Do you feel any different? Is, did this, was this too much for you? And, and being open to feedback. 
Right. Open to feedback. You know, a lot of doctors are been through a lot of training and they're very smart and they're, they, they don't really look and ask for or want feedback. Okay. And a lot of patients are afraid to give feedback. So I like to ask for feedback. Great. Well, again, five things you could take to the bank in trying to persuade anybody to make a change, yourself or anybody else. Aim low and long, meaning what's the one thing we can get done that you can sustain over a really long period of time because that's better than the big thing that we won't sustain. Constantly matching the approach you're taking to the individual's needs, styles, interests, thoughts, what they're coming in already, constantly matching. That one is the one I harp on all the time I practice. Um, Leverage uh, the points of what's going to make it sustainable and what's going to have a long-term impact. Ask the person really what's their driving motivation, meaning what's the limiting piece for them. Okay. And then feedback. Is it working? Is it not working? What a great show. Amy, it's been a pleasure to have you on today. Thank you so much. I have a feeling we keep talking for hours on end. I remind you again, the book, if you're interested, it's Dr. Amy Rothenberg. You finished treatment. Now what? A field guide for cancer survivors. So Amy, thank you for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. And join us next week for another episode in getting out of your comfort zone. If you like this podcast, please like us on your favorite subscription um, platform and check out our subscription services at outofthecomfortzone.com. We'll see you next week. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.